So a time for the children who are present, and perhaps before I move into that, uh, you will notice a change in our worship format, and you will notice how much we depend on Pastor Tom for so many things each Sunday morning. It, it, it comes into our awareness when Pastor Tom can't be with us. Without a violation of HIPAA, uh, Pastor Tom had some um, surgery done yesterday. Uh, it, it sounds to me as though it was laparoscopic. It was urgent, uh, and it appears to have been successful. He hopes to come home this evening. Uh, but we will certainly keep our beloved Pastor Tom in our prayers, and we're certainly aware today of everything he does for us, uh, opening doors and keeping things moving and cueing the pastor, although, Barbara, thank you. Uh, we're, we're so blessed to have uh, musical people who can be of assistance to us and let our worship continue. So um, we'll, we'll keep Pastor Tom in our prayers and hope to welcome him back as soon as possible, even though on the organ he may not be able to do the pedals. We'll, we'll see how that, how that works out for him. But do, do please keep our beloved Pastor Tom in your prayers. So this morning, uh, we have a lesson where Jesus is talking about times that we're going to have to wait for. And I wonder, um, and I'm hoping, that um, you kids at home can think of times when you had to wait for something. When was a time when you were really eager for something, but you had to wait and wait? Can you think of a time? Um, when I ordered a toy and it said it was going to come today, and then, it was, and then it didn't come, and I had to wait for like two days. <laughs> when you wanted a toy and it said it was going to come today, but it didn't come. And you had to wait like two days, and that's a long time. I remember when I was a little kid, maybe six or seven years old, I would get so excited about my birthday, I don't know why, but I was, and so like three months before my birthday in, 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 in April, I'd say, wow, just three months to my birthday, and then the calendar would turn, and I'd say, wow, I'd say to my mom, only two months to my birthday, and then I'd turn the calendar again, and say, it's only one month, and my mother would say, stop nagging me about your birthday. I, say, I wasn't nagging you, Mom. I was just celebrating the fact that the birthday's coming, but it seemed like forever from one birthday to another. Now, of course, that is not the case. So if you waited for a toy for a couple days, how would you like to wait for 2,000 years? That's a long wait, isn't it? And that's how long the church has been waiting for Jesus to come back. So that's what the gospel lesson is about today. The fact that we say Jesus will come again, and we have been waiting all of this time for his return. And when we get to Advent, we're going to talk even more about waiting, because that's a time when we particularly anticipate another of my favorite days when I was a kid, which is Christmas but that will be here before we know it. So let us pray together. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your promises. We give you thanks for the word that tells us you will come again and take us to yourself and that where you are, there we will be always. For this and for so much else, we give you thanks. Amen. Thanks so much, kids.
it's later than we think. And I'm not just talking about being eager for coffee, which I am this morning. Helmut Thielicke was a great German theologian, and he said that one of our problems with time stems from the fact that our clocks are round. And by that he meant time just seems to go round and round in the same place, but in a New Year's Eve sermon, Helmut Thielicke reminds you and me that's not the case. That's how time doesn't work for us. Our gospel today reminds us that time is not going round and round, but is headed irrevocably, inexorably forward. We Christians hold that time is proceeding in a direction, the end of which will bring fulfillment and reveal the kingdom of God on earth. And in today's gospel lesson, Jesus reminds his disciples, it's later than you think. The lesson opens on what may be Wednesday of Holy Week, and Jesus has just hours left to his earthly life. He knows what's ahead, and Jesus is coming out of the temple, probably walking east, out of that eastern gate that's blocked now, um, and he's going to cross the Kidron Brook. And as they are leaving the temple, a disciple marvels and says, look at teacher. Look what large stones and what large buildings. Now, this is an understandable reaction. I have read sources that say, at that time, the temple complex with its building, its approaches, its holding areas for animals, the huge pools, uh, one of them we know at least as long as a football field, all of this was the second largest building complex on the planet at that time, just after the temple complex at Karnak. It was a wonder of the world. The stonework was impressive. Some of the stones, and maybe some of you have seen this, they measured 40 feet long, 12 feet high, with that characteristic strip up at the top of each ashlar, and 18 feet wide, one piece of stone. How they were quarried and brought up to Jerusalem is anybody's guess. And at the main southwest entrance to that whole temple complex, there was an arched bridge that was 50 feet wide, and it was 200 feet above the Teropian Valley that led from Jerusalem into the temple complex. The east facade of the temple was gilded with gold, so that when the sun rose, people couldn't even look at it. It was so dazzling. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And Jesus essentially says, no, you look, because there will not be one stone left here on top of the other. Then the conversation stops until Jesus has left the walls of Jerusalem, and he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem in the temple complex. And remember, when a rabbi sits down, that means it's time for class. There's going to be a formal lesson. I like to imagine that Jesus perhaps had his back to Jerusalem and was facing the disciples so that they could look at this amazing city behind Jesus while he spoke. And Jesus speaks privately to Peter, James, John, and Andrew this time, the only time in the gospel where Andrew is part of that inner circle. And the disciples are probably in a state of understandable dismay or shock. And they ask Jesus, tell us, 
when will this be? And you know what? This is a question that people have asked and have purported to answer for almost 2,000 years. And do you notice it's not a question that Jesus really answers with any precision. This whole chapter in Mark, which I would urge you sometime this week to go home and read through, this whole chapter in Mark is sometimes called the Little Apocalypse. Well, it's big enough, and both Matthew and Mark draw, excuse me, both Matthew and Luke draw on Mark for their end days statements. In fact, listen the first Sunday of Advent, please, when we are in Luke, and we'll have a similar gospel lesson, and you'll tell how much Luke has borrowed from Mark in that chapter. So we must remember that the word apocalypse means a revelation, like the last book in the New Testament, an unveiling, an opening up. The apocalypse is not the same as Armageddon, even though people are using apocalyptic as though it's some type of destructive, explosive, ruinous time, but it means a revelation, finding something out. So Jesus begins to say what's going to happen, but he adds this surprising clause, do not be alarmed. Did you catch that? Do not be alarmed. So today, one of our hymns, and I may just come and play it along because it's one of my favorites, is, Oh, happy day, lobt Gott, ihr Christen. Praise God, you Christians. Oh, happy day. It seems that believers have either been in a state of anticipation or a state of alarm about the return of the Lord Jesus almost since the ascension. I have wondered ever since I was a little kid sometimes about that ascension passage in the gospel of, excuse me, in the Acts of the Apostles. The disciples are standing on the mountain. They're looking up into heaven. They're waiting. Jesus has ascended and they're thinking, well, He's been gone 10 or 15 minutes. When is he coming back? They stand there looking. And finally, the disciples need an angelic message to tell them, get back to Jerusalem and get back to their prayers because this same Jesus whom they saw going up into heaven is going to return in like fashion. But the angel didn't say when. In some of Paul's earliest writings, in fact, it's probably the earliest material in our Greek scriptures, he is writing to the Thessalonians, and Paul has to reassure believers about those who have already died before the Lord has returned. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Now concern, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in your mind. And that phrase about being quickly shaken in your mind could just as easily be translated as don't lose your heads. Don't lose your heads about it. Many of the great theologians of Christian history have warned against false hopes and false fears concerning the last days. And many distortions and abuses have occurred, nevertheless, despite those warnings. We might even think of the Crusades that were initiated when Jesus didn't come back in the year 1000, as some readers had understood the millennium to imply. Enormous bloodshed and tragedy followed in the wake of that misguided effort, leaving a bitter legacy 
for Eastern Christianity, the Orthodox brothers and sisters, as well as in Islam, as we have heard more about the last 20 or 25 years. Here in America, in the 1830s, as part of the Great Awakening, you probably remember reading about that in your social studies or American history, as part of the Great Awakening, there was a man named William Miller who began preaching about the last days. And eventually, through careful study, he arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was going to return sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Well, Jesus didn't return, did he? And there were a huge number of people who were disappointed and dispossessed because they had given away all of their possessions so that they could get into some white clothing and stand on a mountaintop and be the first to be captured up with Jesus when he returned. But William Miller was not daunted at this, and he revised his deadline to October 22nd, 1844, when Jesus was supposed to come back. When Jesus didn't return once again, this episode was characterized as the great disappointment instead of the great awakening. But there were some one million Millerites followers of his work. He must have been quite the preacher. And these believers fragmented into a whole number, as it happens so often in America, a whole number of different denominations, including groups like Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventists. A group of Seventh-day Adventists splintered again in 1959 when they had predicted the return of Jesus, which, did you notice, didn't happen. So they splintered and became the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, and that group splintered again into the Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidians. And maybe you remember that story from Waco, Texas, and the ghastly outcome for that misguided cult. I can recall my dad talking about stories he heard of the early German congregations in this country who were split apart over doctrinal feuds. They loved to scrap about doctrine back then. As, and one, this scrap was about whether Jesus was going to come back before or after the millennium. And this was sometimes referred to as the Killiest controversy, spelled with a C-H. And my dad said that there were sometimes, he heard the stories, fistfights at annual meetings between different parties who held different views. So these guys would get into fistfights, and they were all guys back then, regarding this apparently enormous issue in doctrine over which Jesus said absolutely nothing. Nothing. More recently, in my memory, it seems to me that in this country in the 70s and 80s, we were caught up in some kind of rapture mania. That movement that probably reached its apex with the Left Behind series, which I have to say made for an entertaining and gripping read and also made for absolutely lousy theology. Lousy theology. I actually heard a theologian at a conference refer to it as softcore pornography. I'm not sure that was an overstatement. Pornos meaning evil from Greek. Lousy theology. And this was despite the fact that writers as far back as St. Augustine have reminded us, be on guard against this kind of latter-day 
hysteria. And it seemed to me like the churches in mainline denominations were silent to push back against that kind of foolishness. So, as a church, we follow that straight line arrow moving forward, advancing in hope, not dread. In a sermon from 1544, just two years before he died, Martin Luther said concerning the end times, here's what he said, what we now preach and believe, we shall then look upon. For the preaching and believing must cease and be taken away, so that then we live with the dear angels, eternally blessed with a beatific vision, which vision we have here on earth only in hearing and believing. Therefore, Luther says, this kingdom, which is of word and of faith, will be changed into a different kingdom, where we shall no longer believe, but we shall see before our eyes God the Father and Christ the Lord. But now we must submit to the veiling of our eyes, and we must be content to be led by faith in the word alone. And yet, Luther says, and yet all who are baptized and believe that the Son of God is made human in the likeness of humankind, all those are already in the kingdom of God. All those are already in the kingdom of God. So while treasuring the past, the church looks forward to the future. Our former presiding bishop, Mark Hansen, used to say that the worst virus infecting our congregations was nostalgia. The virus of nostalgia, the longing and desire for how things used to be. I don't think I have told you my favorite Lutheran joke, so I'll do so now. And I hope you haven't heard it, but if you have, it's still okay. So here it is, my favorite Lutheran joke. How many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> it takes four, one to change the light bulb and three to complain about how much they love the old one. <laughs> it's true, it's true. The old hymns, the old hymn book, the old altar, the old pastor, we love to complain about how much we love the old one. And you know, there's the Book of Common Prayer. Lutherans don't have a monopoly on this idea of loving the way it was. We treasure our past, but we look forward to the future, even though we have no idea what's going to happen. I was talking to some of you about that this morning, how on New Year's Eve of 2019, how clueless we were of what a massive change we were all going to be facing. And how for months, our big outing, like we were living in some kind of group home, our big outing was going to the grocery store. It's amazing. Who could have predicted that? We treasure our past, but we look forward to the future. Every Sunday saying he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. One of my colleagues in a meeting in Hawaii, of course, there's a very heavy Eastern Buddhist influence there. And she said just offhandedly during this meeting, my sensei says, be aware, but don't be anxious. Anxious in the sense of don't be filled with anxiety. Be aware, but don't be anxious. And I was thunderstruck by her offhanded comment, and I obviously never forgot it. 
because I was raised in a family complex where to know was to worry. And in fact, if you didn't worry, that kind of implied that you were a little bit lazy or indifferent, that you didn't care. That was not a helpful algorithm to grow up with. Jesus says, be aware, watch, watch. In fact, that may be the last word in this chapter of Mark's. Watch, but don't be anxious. The conditions described by Jesus as indicating the end times, wars, famines, earthquakes, does that sound familiar? They've been occurring ever since Jesus' time. And Jesus says, these are birth pangs. Perhaps one of the major issues from this entire little apocalypse in Mark is not precisely what is going to happen when, but one of my favorite questions, how then shall we live? In light of this gospel lesson, how then shall we live? In light of the fact that we know the future is taking us forward and that our history will be discerned with the divine purpose, how then shall we live? Paul had some good advice for us when he wrote, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you have been doing. In the light of history, in the light of the future, and as our Roman Catholic siblings would say, sub specie aeternitatis, in light of eternity, how then shall we live? Towards what shall we put our energies? Stewing and fussing and excommunicating one another over doctrinal points that we cannot actually know and which has not yet been revealed to us openly? Or, Will we put our energies directed towards that which Christ has precisely instructed us, which is loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves? That's it. That's it. And that's more than enough. There's a saying of Martin Luther's that I actually have posted on my refrigerator. He said, and if I thought the world were to end tomorrow, I would still plant a little apple tree today. Still, nevertheless, we are a people who live in the nevertheless. We are both and people. It's later than you think. How then shall we live? How's this for a response? You heard it from Nancy already this morning. How's this for an answer to how then shall we live? Let us approach the sanctuary with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day approaching. Thanks be to God.